You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell, editor of the NC Insider, sitting in the host and chair this week. And on the panel, we've got Lauren Horsch of the Insider, Lynn Bonner from the News and Observer, Will Doran of the NNO, and Andy Spay of PolitiFact North Carolina. Busy week, sort of in politics. A few big stories popped up this week uh, as we enjoy the semi-doldrums of between the uh, monthly legislative sessions. Uh, we've got another one coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, everyone, you know, get excited that they're coming back to town yet again. Uh, but for now, there's other fun controversies involving other odd corners of uh, state government to talk about. Uh, so we'll get to a bunch of those this week. Uh, let's start off with the news from Friday morning of the um, latest on Confederate monuments in the Capitol Square area of downtown Raleigh. Lynn Bonner, you were at the uh, meeting of the Historic Commission. Uh, is this the first time we've ever covered a Historic Commission in your years of covering state government? In my years, yes, it's the first time we've ever covered it and really only really heard of it in the last uh, few months. Uh, as one of the members said, you know, they're usually, she agreed with the uh, I guess she mentioned an editorial that mentioned it's like a usually a sleepy little commission now all of a sudden in the center of the news. Uh, in any case, um, they were going to act or they were asked to act on a petition from the Cooper administration to move three Confederate monuments from Capitol Square, which is downtown Raleigh, to uh, Johnson County, um, the site of a Civil War battle. Um, and the commission... Uh, Hunted long, um, the they decided to uh, put off any decision um, until April, giving them time to point another committee of the commission to cast a wide net for uh, explanations of what the law they're acting under actually means and to get more opinions on what to do with monuments. They're going to they want opinions from law schools near and far on this law that says that they that monuments can only be moved with their approval um, and they're going to consult with some historians and other uh, professors about um, contextualizing monuments um, and they're also going to consider um, the uh, opposition from Senate Leader Berger and um, the Republican House majority. So there wasn't very much discussion about the monuments. Of course, the audience was half full of people interested in this issue. Um, you know, it's become a national issue since uh, Charlottesville. So uh, everybody will be waiting uh, until next year to find out um, what they're going to decide. Any sense of the leanings of the members of this board? I know you tried to reach out to some of them earlier in the week to get a sense for whether they're in any way likely to be supportive of what Cooper's proposing. I don't know how they're leaning. I know that they're, they want to be cautious um, because uh, Berger, in his letter, said that uh, anything that they do would not stand up in court. Um, there was also talk about, well, with this, we're setting precedent. So they want to move, obviously, slowly and carefully. Um, so, no, I really can't, couldn't tell you which way the commission is, is leaning. There's, there are 11 members. Um, 
three appointed by Cooper, one reappointed by Cooper, but some have been on the commission for years. So it's it's hard to say. Yeah, and a lot of them, I guess, are McCrory appointees. So even though he's no longer the governor well, and this is a governor's Ma- committee. McCrory reappointed and reappointed a lot of them, but some of them have been on far longer than McCrory was so they would governor. they date so, to Purdue or easily oh, even, Or yeah. even longer ago than that. Um, so... Um, yeah, some of them had been on for years. Yeah. And I guess this was the first week we really got a good sense for where the legislature comes down on this fight. Uh, pretty long memos from both the House Republicans and Senate Leader Phil Berger. Uh, what's their stance on this? What arguments are they making? No. Uh, <laughs> not, <laughs> in short, telling uh, the commission not to do it, um, that the law says that they, they are not, um, they don't have the ability to do this. And, um, yeah, as I said, Berger saying that, um, that any action would, uh, could result in a lawsuit that they would lose. Yeah, and it was interesting with Berger's letter that he got into uh, questioning Cooper's selection of which statues on the Capitol grounds needed to move and wondering why Cooper didn't want to move uh, Governor Zebulon advanced, ACOC, some other people with some questionable histories in, in North Carolina's past. Yes, that was, that was an interesting point. Yeah, and I guess pointing out that some of them were Democrats, which is, you know, always the interesting argument when we get the partisan debate down of 100, 150 years into the past of what the party stood for at that time, which is different from what either party stands for now. Right. So, uh, you know, it continues. Yeah, and I will know. I think I asked the uh, Cooper administration a couple weeks back about their selection, and the answer I got was very short. It was that these were monuments exclusively uh, related to the Confederacy, and I guess you can make the case with the other monuments that these uh, governors did different did things than else. just right. be racist. Right. Um, so that'll be an interesting debate going forward. Uh, other uh, thing that seems to never quite go out of the news is the uh, Gen X contamination issue down in Wilmington. Seems like there's a new development on that. Uh, nearly every day uh, is the uh, DEQ and other uh, state officials are, are dealing with that. Uh, Will, you've uh, looked into the situation with DEQ. I mean, I guess the sort of the key tension here is this uh, governor's veto this week of the bill that would give some funding to, I guess it's the utility down in the Wilmington area to deal with the contamination issue. Yes, um, the the bill uh, would give money to both the, the local utility group and also UNC Wilmington to start kind of, you know, digging into the pollution, the possible health effects, how to clean up. Etc. Um, Cooper vetoed it uh, before they passed the bill. He had asked for around two and a half million dollars to be sent to DEQ to rehire a bunch of engineers, scientists, doctors, medical researchers, people like that um, to kind of tackle this. Uh, you know, citing budget cuts that the agency has faced in recent years and saying that you know, uh, really that's the the best use of state money at this point is to give it to the agency that is in charge of regulating instead of giving it to kind of uh, still, you know, government groups, but, you know, kind of more outsider groups, you know, in that it's a you know, local utilities commission and university. Um, obviously, the legislature did not end up doing that, so he vetoed it. Um, but given his criticisms uh, that he had, you know, made of funding in the veto, I pulled up some old budget documents and crunched some numbers and uh, found that, Basically, over the the last decade, uh, 
DEQ, obviously for most of that decade, it was known as Diener, has seen some pretty major cuts. Um, and that's outside of the fact that when they changed to Diener, the zoo and some of the state parks were moved into a different cabinet right. agency. Right. When you first look at the numbers, it looks like it's massive. It looks like, oh my God, this agency has lost almost 70% of its budget in the last 10 years. But if you actually you know, delve into it, you see, oh, well, about half of that was from, like you said, when they moved the state parks and the zoo and the aquariums to cultural resources. Uh, that was like, uh, you know, 70 million of the 120 million dollar cut yeah uh, and you were able to zero in on the the actual environmental regulatory side of what this agency and the previous version of this exactly so um for for people who are fans of fans of the details and getting into the weeds of the wonky stuff you know i i looked at a couple of just the the individual divisions within diener and looked at some of the cuts and uh you know some of the the divisions that are on the front lines, you know, like th there's a division called Water Supply Protection, which I think is pretty unambiguously named, and they've lost a third of their staff in the last decade. Um, and now that hasn't entirely been because of legislative cuts. They've also lost some money at the federal level, um, but the legislature has reduced their funding from uh, 1.7 million to 1.5 million. So they've cut, you know, basically all of the money that they used to give to water supply protection. Uh, same with the field offices that DEQ operates uh, in, you know, seven different regions around the state to kind of really hone in on local environmental issues. They've also lost a third of their staff, um, have had some other budget cuts to, you know, to non-staffing issues. And, you know, the, the list goes on. Uh, water quality, uh, Governor Cooper said, has lost 70 positions just since 2013. Um, he honed in specifically on people who write permits for these companies. And that's really, when, when you hear people talk about Gen X, that's kind of what it boils down to, is this company was, according to the state, dumping a pollutant into the river without a permit to do so, which means that the state didn't know this was happening. The state wasn't watching to make sure that, you know, there weren't unacceptable levels of this pollution in the river, which now says that there were. So, um, but, uh, you know, we... Uh, I think politicians here are often fond of uh, comparisons with South Carolina when it makes their cause look good. Uh, I, I don't know why we always love to beat up on South Carolina so much. You know, when but, I grew up uh, in Virginia, we like to beat up on North Carolina. It's everyone beats <laughs> up on whoever's further to the south. Well, I'm from Florida, so yeah. <laughs> Cuba, I guess. I don't know. Well, I'm just saying we get beat up on everybody. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, anyways, um, he, he was saying that we have only half as many permit reviewers and inspectors as South Carolina does, but dozens more facilities to look into and inspect and that has led to a months-long backlog for instance the company at the center of this whole gen x thing their permit has been expired since last october you know almost a year at this point um and when companies permits expire they're allowed to continue operating under their outdated permit uh if there's backlog which there's a very large backlog so that that was just one of the uh one of the jobs that Cooper was trying to create with this new money, uh, the permit writers, like I said, there were also some engineers and some scientists that he wanted to, to fund. Uh, legislature didn't give him any of that. Um, uh, Republicans in the legislature have said that, well, you know, DEQ is just a rubber stamp. They haven't really been doing that great of a job anyways. So, you know, let's, you know, 
let's see some proof that they actually need this money. Yeah, um, so I guess they seem fairly unconvinced from the governor's case that DEQ needs more. Yeah, there was a letter that several Republican legislators sent to the governor after he you know, made his formal funding request, and they basically insinuated that this is just a PR move uh, by Cooper, that you know, they, they had some serious questions about you know, like concrete examples of what the money would actually be used to do and how it could make a difference rather than just, you know, like they said, be a, a public relations stunt. Yep. All right. I guess we're going get, to get a veto override, or at least there's a good chance of one, on the uh, Gen X funding bill that also has a bunch of other environmental stuff, including the repeal of the plastic bag ban, uh, possibly when they come back in October. Uh, but I'm sure the uh, discussion over DEQ is going to keep going for a long time as long as there's a standoff between Republicans in the legislature and the governor on that issue. Yeah. So thanks for that, Will. Uh, other big topic uh, the last couple weeks and continuing probably the next couple weeks is uh, judicial redistricting. The House committee dealing with that uh, met this week to hold a sort of a public hearing. It was uh, uh, only open to sort of invited folks. So it was a lot of the uh, legal and judicial uh, advocacy groups, the Bar Association, the uh, District uh, Court Judges Association, the same sort of group for the Superior Court Judges, uh, making their case to the House to slow it down uh, and take a little bit more time, perhaps uh, waiting until next year uh, to redraw the state's uh, judicial districts. Um, they made some arguments separate from we've been hearing a lot about this issue from a partisan standpoint that this is a Republican attempt to uh, reduce the number of Democrats who hold judicial seats. Uh, Republicans say they're worried that there are too many Democrats that hold them now under uh, potentially gerrymandered lines. Uh, but the case from the judges in the Bar Association was more along the lines of how it impacts the judiciary from a completely nonpartisan standpoint and that uh, by redrawing the districts you push out a lot of incumbents um, and that means you have less experienced judges on the bench. You have districts that don't have a whole lot of attorneys living in them, so less competition for judicial seats and some concerns about travel times that the way the uh, divisions and districts would be structured. Uh, judges would spend more time uh, traveling far, far from their homes in their home counties to hold court, uh, making the uh, act of being a judge uh, perhaps less attractive to folks with families. Uh, so all those will come into play. Uh, we're hearing that the latest version of the bill with some tweaks from uh, Justin Burr, the sponsor of the plan, is going to come out uh, next Wednesday, uh, and possibly there's going to be a vote on that in the House committee dealing with judicial de- redistricting. So something to watch there. Uh, certainly a, a issue that has a lot of uh, wide sweeping consequences that hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention just because it's uh, uh, fairly uh, down in the weeds of the way uh, the court system works. So we'll have to see what happens with that. Uh, other thing, uh, jumping back to the sort of environmental issues that we were just talking about, uh, there was a recent comment made along with the Gen X debate by uh, State Representative Billy Richardson, uh, and that was something that uh, Andy did a fact check of uh, this week. Uh, Andy, tell us what the statement was and, and what you found out as you started to dig into it. That's right. Uh, well, Billy Richardson was fighting for some DEQ funding, as uh, Will alluded to earlier, when it comes to you know cleaning up the rivers and stuff like that. And when he was on the House floor, he said that uh, two of the country's uh, most polluted rivers, uh, two of the top five of the country's most polluted rivers are in North Carolina. Um, And we at PolitiFact uh, found that uh, statement surprising, and so we looked into it. Um, And when we inquired, as we always do at PolitiFact, with the person who makes claims, we reached out to Mr. Richardson 
And his assistant said that he misquoted uh, the American Rivers Organization's annual Most Endangered Rivers Report, which is something some environmentalists know a lot about. The Sierra Club refers people to it. Uh, others. So a pretty reputable source. Very It's a matter of how Representative Richardson was characterizing it. Well, he was characterizing the Cape Fear and the Noose River as two of the most polluted. The first or second page of the most endangered rivers report says do not confuse this as a list of the worst or most polluted rivers in america So there's a distinction between endangered and polluted right there's uh their list the most endangered list is a call to action uh in states where you know funding is being lost for environmental protections or there are about to be rollbacks or there was a major disaster or you know such as a hurricane um which is the case here american rivers is worried about uh hog waste from lagoons uh flooding and getting into the cape fear and the noose after stuff like hurricanes like uh matthew last year um, and so, so that's it's not an issue that's really dirty. It's it could get really dirty based on the sort of circumstances that North Carolina has from a you know weather standpoint. That's correct. And they were calling on our legislature to uh, bring back an old program that helps farmers move hog lagoons uh, further away from rivers like the Cape Fear and the Noose. Um, so Mr. Uh, Representative Richardson was off and saying that they're two of the most polluted because they're two of the most endangered according to his own source um and then he said they were in the top five there those two rivers were actually paired as number seven on the american rivers uh, most endangered so he sort of struck out on both uh, both counts um he called us right right after the story um went online and said I, I know i've got that that there's a story somewhere that had him in the top five <laughs> but he just couldn't find it yeah uh so we rated that uh false all right uh red flag false for uh, representative billy richardson from politifact this week uh also uh we heard a lot from uh, a few lawmakers uh and uh congress uh candidates this week uh, folks getting ready to run for office in 2018. It's just around the corner. Uh, we heard from, uh, I guess, most notably Linda Coleman, uh, who was the Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor the past few cycles, uh, came in uh, by a small margin short to Dan Forrest in 2012 and then uh, lost by a little bit more of a margin last year. She is going to be taking on uh, Representative George Holding for the second congressional district, but first she's got to get through a very crowded uh, Democratic primary. Uh, there's a uh, vodka distillery owner who's in that race. There's a veteran from Johnston County who is transgender. Uh, there was another person who jumped in uh, this week from a tech firm. Did anyone write about that? I think that was uh, our colleague Brian Murphy in D.C. who uh, uh, got the uh, another candidate who was in the race. But uh, anyway, the point being, uh, should be a busy uh, Democratic primary, I think in part because uh, people see holding as more vulnerable this cycle. If, if 2018 ends up being a good year for Democrats, they think that uh, they've got the chance to uh, unseat him. And certainly the uh, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee up in D.C. has put this on their target list. So that's, uh, I think, inspired uh, some candidates. Uh, and then uh, looking a little bit more locally, Lauren, you looked into uh, one of the candidates announcing for uh, state legislature this week. Yeah, so um a uh, Dare County, specifically Kitty Hawk businessman named uh, Clark Twitty, announced this week that he would be running for the state Senate uh, District 1 seat, and that is a seat that's going to be 
essentially open because the senator there, Bill Cook, announced that he was retiring. So Twitty decided he was going to, you know, put his hat in the ring and say, I'm going to run for it. But this comes after he'd announced he was actually going to run for lieutenant governor. So um, it's kind of interesting to see that he would move from a statewide race to just kind of a local district. But he also didn't say he would rule out a 2020 race for lieutenant governor. So this would just be for 2018. Yeah, because I remember seeing him. He was uh, the first I'd heard of him was at the uh, Republican convention down in Wilmington a few months back. He had a table set up for Clark Twitty, lieutenant governor, with signs and bumper stickers out there. I was like, wow, it's a surprisingly well-organized <laughs> campaign for yeah. something that's that many years into the future. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what his uh, political future is uh, going ahead. He has to have a good Twitter handle with a last name like that. Yeah, I, I wonder if he'll get support based on people thinking yeah. that he's related to or uh, is somehow connected to Conway Twitty, the country singer. Uh, but uh, I guess that, that remains to be seen going forward. Uh, other uh, news this week, we have a new member of the state legislature who's replacing Representative Chris Millis down in Pender County. Uh, he was named by the Republican Party this week. Uh, Bob Mueller, not to be confused with the guy who's currently investigating the president. Uh, this is a guy who I think has been pretty active in uh, uh, local level uh, Republican Party leadership for uh, a number of years now. Uh, and it was the pick, I think, nominated by Millis himself. There were no other uh, official contenders for that seat. So he'll be I guess formally appointed within the coming days or weeks and uh, probably by the time the legislature comes back in uh, October, uh, Representative Muller from Pender County will be uh, serving in the House. Uh, last thing we wanted to touch on before we uh, go to a break, uh, Lauren, you've got a story coming out in The Insider uh, probably early next week to look for on uh, women in politics. You've been uh, looking into this issue for a while. Uh, what are you finding for the role that women have in this state legislature, in this state government uh, versus other states and versus how things have been in, in past cycles? Well, one thing I can say is North Carolina is faring a little bit better than some of our neighbors. Um, so currently, about 25% of the state legislature is uh, comprised of women, but the state population total is about 51% women. So women are still a little bit underrepresented in the state legislature. Um, but in talking with women from both sides of the aisle, um, you know, they see their roles a little bit differently. Um, some have talked a lot about some of the sexism they saw on the campaign trail, um, and others have said they felt welcomed in the General Assembly and haven't had a lot of, you know, lewd comments sent their way. Um, and I also got the chance to talk to former Governor Bev Perdue because she has been the only woman elected governor and lieutenant governor. So she has a very interesting perspective because not only was she governor, but she also spent uh, two terms in the state house and then about a decade in the Senate. Um, so I talked to her about her time and she has some really interesting stories about, you know, her her first day as governor, her inauguration day, even then she realized, you know, government wasn't necessarily set up for women. Uh, and that's when she was walking around the uh, executive mansion and saw a sign that, you know, dedicated the mansion to the governors and first ladies who would live there. So even just, you know, emboldened right there on the gate. So her husband didn't realize that he had to be a woman for four years. Yeah. So uh, and it's I mean, and it's striking if you've been in the governor's mansion, you see all these, you know, gorgeous portraits of first ladies and governors. And then, you know, just in the first lady picture pictures, you know, there's a uh, Bob Purdue. And yeah, Bob then, Eves, I think is his name. Oh, yeah. Bob Eves, yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> and uh, then there's, um, you know, uh, Governor Purdue. So it's just, it's it's a big contrast. And um, I know I was talking with Senator Angela Bryant um, 
and this was when she was in the House, and she's a Democrat from Nash County, and she was telling me about how after the Republicans took control of you know both chambers of the legislature, some of the Demo- most of the Democratic, if not all of the Democratic women, were not given interim committee appointments. And, you know, she saw that right away as, you know, being an attack on women and, you know, feeling like they weren't needed in the legislature. So they tried to get on interim committees and there was, you know, little help there for them. Yeah. And I guess the committee's situation now is not uh, all that favorable for women. Um, Notably, we have uh, Speaker Pro Tem Sarah Stevens this session. um, But in terms of the women on committees, not a particularly high percentage uh, as you were crunching the numbers on. Yeah. I don't, I don't have those numbers exactly handy, but I know out of... to read the story to see yeah. the, whole, the detailed um, I, numbers. I do know out of the House committees, I mean, and this is only standing non-subcommittees, you know, non-select committees, there was 75 chairs of committees and only 10 of them were women. So, I mean, you can just crunch the numbers there. I'm bad at math. I basically failed, you know, spirit of mathematics in college. So I used a calculator and double-checked everything. Um, but, you know, it's still not the greatest situation for women. Yeah, and I guess there's a – you wrote a little bit about the push from both uh, liberals and conservatives mm-hmm. to try to get more women into politics. Does that seem like uh, we're going to see more of a shift in the coming years based on the level of interest uh, both in running as a Republican or as a Democrat? I think we will. Uh, the Republican Party, the state Republican Party, wouldn't give me exact numbers, um, but Dallas Woodhouse did say that there's been a push and they feel like they've been successful in getting more women interested. They have um, – what I would term scouts down on the ground looking for people or for, for women at the local level who can maybe move up or start at the local level and then work their way up. And then I talked with the executive director of Lillian's List, and she was telling me that they had 200 women expressed interest in running for politics. And Lillian's List really focuses on uh, progressive women and getting them you know, trained and ready to run. Um, and usually during election year, they only get about 20 people interested or 20 women interested. So I think that's a pretty big increase. And there does seem to be a pretty sizable bench of uh, women in politics at the local government level. Uh, and we've got female mayors of Raleigh, Greensboro, Asheville, and Charlotte, uh, and probably some others that I'm not even thinking of, mm-hmm. uh, which is a good segue into, hey, it's early voting for uh, local elections in, in Raleigh and I think some other places as well. Uh, and there's some concerns about turnout. Uh, Will, you wrote a little bit about this this week. Um, what, what are we likely to expect out of, uh, I guess, particularly the Raleigh race? I don't want to get into this too much for our listeners across the state, but uh, what, what are you finding? Yeah, well, um, usually in Raleigh elections, you get right around 10, 11% of eligible voters casting a ballot. And it's going to be interesting this year. Um, Nancy McFarland, she's been the mayor of Raleigh since 2011. She's never had a real challenger before, but this year she does. She she has always been uh, supported by the, the local Democratic Party. Yeah, even though she's uh, unaffiliated, her views seem to sort of match the, the Democratic Party, I guess. Exactly. She's unaffiliated, but she leans left, and there's never really been a, you know, a Democrat that has, uh, you know, piqued the party's interest more than her. But this year there is. Uh, Charles Francis, he's a local attorney, businessman, um, and he's got the party support. And um, it looks like it'll be this interesting almost case study here in North Carolina of you know, someone who's established, has a lot of name recognition, a lot of history to run on, but doesn't have, you know, the backing of the party machine. 
And then, you know, you have this person who's a relative newcomer, not a ton of name recognition, but who does have the party backing. Um, you know, we, we've we noted, I, I guess it was, what, last week? Uh, Unaffiliateds officially became the second biggest political block in the state. It goes Democrats and then Unaffiliateds and then Republicans. Um, so, you know, independent voters are growing, um, but, you know, it'll kind of be, you know, who... Uh, who shows up? Because that's the issue with these elections. I think Charlotte's yeah. uh, primary recently came down to a fairly small percentage of registered voters in the city that actually came out and made the difference between Jennifer Roberts uh, having a shot at another term versus where she's at now, where she's out of the race and it's uh, it's between uh, a different Repu- diff- Democrat and a, a Republican uh, running for that seat. So uh, yeah, that one came down to like three thousand votes. Yeah, um, it was it was a really narrow margin, and so it's, it's really impossible to tell. You know, to the extent it was a referendum on Jennifer. For Roberts, uh, not enough people showed up to know what the referendum would have been had it actually been the, the more majority of the city. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was just going to say, you know, in terms of local elections like this, uh, the having the party backing, I, I don't know how much that means, you know, and and many elections, you know, you get the party's resources, their money, their ground game. Nancy McFarlane is an extremely. Uh, Let's say I, I don't know how effective she was at running her business. I just know that she got lots of money when she sold it, and so if sure, uh, Mr. Francis might have the party backing, and that might get him some resources. But she's been uh, willing to throw a fair amount of her own personal fortune into running for Raleigh mayor over the last few cycles. Absolutely, and even behind some of the other count around some of the other council members who support her, and um, so I don't if you know. In other cases, if you have the party's backing, that puts you at a financial advantage. I don't know in Raleigh because of McFarland's background, um, her financial background. I don't. I don't know that that gives him any sort of leg up. I still think she has name recognition and money. So, but we'll see. Yeah, um, it's it's always a wild card, and uh, you know some some of the small towns in the past have had their elections decided by a coin toss uh, because there were so few people that went out and voted. So I guess the the moral of that is uh, go vote. You know, the uh, your local election has more of an impact on your life than a lot of what happens at the state and federal level. So whether it's an October election like in Raleigh or in November, as is, uh, is the case in a number of cities and towns around the state. Uh, go vote. Uh, vote on my behalf. I live in an unincorporated area, and I'm always really sad in odd years that I don't get to uh, participate in democracy at all because I'm not in a, a municipality of any kind. Uh, but on that note, uh, again, go vote. Uh, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with Headliner of the Week. I love Carolina Blue Sky. You know what I love? I love North Carolina barbecue. With vinegar and red sauce. We love taking family trips to the beach. Family trips to the beach. I love to fire up the grill with my friends. Firing up the grill with next door neighbors. North Carolina is really my home. North Carolina is home. Home behind the accent is just another North Carolinian. Visit UnitingNC.org to learn more about the diversity that makes our state great. And welcome back to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from The Insider, and it's now time for everybody's favorite segment, Headliner of the Week, where we ask everyone on the panel uh, to identify who they thought the biggest headliner of this week was, and then at the end I will uh, pick someone for this coveted honor that doesn't come with a prize. Uh, Let's start off uh, with Lynn Bonner. Lynn, who's your headliner? I'm going to be a little bit different this week. I'm going for prediction of a future headline, which will be uh, the SEO headline, uh, Commission Stripped of power over confederate monuments or 
if we're going to create a mystery, will be guess who's no longer in charge of designing who's, <laughs> who's, what we're going to yeah. do with Confederate monuments. Guess which um, obscure if, if, committee if has met, no power. If we, um, if you read the uh, petition for, for moving monuments, the last line is something like "Be quick" or "Make haste" or something like that. Move quickly because um, now that they've punted until April, the legislature has time to change the law, um, and they can say. Uh, we're going to decide, or they can say uh, we're going to appoint all the commissioners, or they can say anything they want. Um, so by moving this to April, um, there is uh, an opportunity for the legislature to make changes. Why do they think this might? Why do I think this might be true? Because uh, history repeats itself. See what I did there? Uh, we have, we, uh, we know that. Um, when the legislature uh, wasn't all that happy with uh, the State Board of Ed, they created a law to move some of the State Board of Ed's powers to the new superintendent. Uh, the Democratic governor no longer has the ability to appoint all members of the State Board of Elections. I could go on, but we know the pattern. So uh, that's my uh, headliner, the future headline. All right, the future uh, loss of power for the uh, historic commission that we never really knew had power. Uh, now they may be losing it before they have any chance to uh, actually uh, exercise any control over state money. So uh, that's in the hat. Thanks for that, Lynn. And uh, next up, Will Doran. Who's your headliner? Uh, I guess it's a hyphenated headliner. Uh, Graham Cassidy, which was the name of the uh, national health care bill. Which to... I initially thought was the name of a 60s folk singer before I realized what that was referring to in headlines. <laughs> yeah. Right. Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, and Graham Cassidy, yeah. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's the uh, the newest attempt to uh, to get rid of Obamacare. Um, right before we started recording this, it looked like it might have kind of suffered its death blow when John McCain said that he didn't like it. Um, it you know, as we've seen with all of the recent attempts this year to repeal Obamacare, you know, it hangs on this real thin margin. Um, but I don't think it's officially dead yet as of this recording, so I'm still comfortable with making it my headliner. Um, but our colleague uh, Brian Murphy up in the D.C. office wrote um, about several different studies that have come out, um, you know, uh, looking into the effects of this bill that you found that, uh, you know, it would cost the state billions of dollars. Uh, you know, some of the studies, you know, found more billions, some found fewer billions, but they all still found billions of losses. Um, Dallas Woodhouse of the NCGOP pointed out on Twitter to me that, well, that really just means that's, you know, billions of dollars fewer in tax money being stolen from people, um, which is partially true, but uh, not entirely because some states would actually get a lot more money. Um, yeah, it really differs state by state depending on how they'd handled um, the Affordable Care Act to begin with and Medicaid yeah. expansion. Well, North Carolina is, again, a weird out. Every step of the healthcare process, we've seen North Carolina is just this weird, wacky outlier that's affected by things way more than most other states are. And for the most part, states that did not accept the Medicaid expansion that Obamacare offered, which includes North Carolina, got billions more dollars. Basically, all of the Deep South, except for us, in under Graham Cassidy would have gotten a ton more money. Um, but apparently, and this is what I didn't realize, but what Brian wrote, apparently we were too good at getting people signed up on the individual marketplace um, and getting people actually enrolled in insurance. And since we were like too effective or efficient at that, that actually meant that if this bill passed, we would have lost you know, 
six, seven, eight, nine billion dollars over the next, I think it was decade or something like Interesting. that. Interesting. And I understand from our, our two senators, that's not uh, something that's causing them to be a no vote. I guess we've heard from Burr as a yes vote. I don't think I saw anything from directly from Tom Tillis, but I think he said in the past that he'll he'll vote for anything that repeals uh, the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, yeah. Burr, Burr was definitely vocally in favor of this one. I think a lot of people kind of assumed Tillis was because of his past stances and statements like that one, but I didn't, I didn't see anything specific. Yeah, I don't think I saw anything specifically. One. I don't have to look back at uh, Twitter to see if anything popped up, but, but I hadn't seen one from him. But like I said, it might be dead anyways yeah, by the time if, people listen yeah, to this. Yeah, you know, McCain is uh, changing or coming out and, uh, against it. We could see a repeat of uh, history from a few weeks ago. All right, so uh, Graham Cassidy in there along with the uh, Historic Commission Future Power Strip. Uh, let's go next to uh, Lauren. I think the mic's closest to you, so <laughs> jump on in there with your headliner. So I feel like I sound like a broker, broken record when I say this, but Pat McCrory is my headliner. Wait, didn't he leave office a while ago? I, I think so. Um, no, I know so. Um, <laughs> I was living in Durham at the time, so yeah, I know so. Um, but... He is, again, back in the news with maybe being a pundit at a Charlotte radio station. No one's really quite sure what he's doing, but all we know is he's talking on the radio for five to ten minutes most mornings. Yeah, he did a commentary this week on the uh, prayer issue at Charlotte City Council. Yeah, he's commenting sh- a lot of very local Charlotte politics yeah, issues wh- on the Charlotte station. Which makes sense, because he was the Charlotte mayor. But it's it's just it's it's interesting to see him just back in the headlines all yeah. the time trying to keep his name there, and he was talking with, to the Associated Press, I do believe, and didn't rule out a 2020 run. Yeah, so he said he would decide, I think, after, after 2018. Yeah. So he'll keep us in suspense about his future plans. He still uh, has not been clear on what he's doing day to day, job wise. Besides um, hanging out in McDowell County, yeah, yeah, we don't he has really a new know. house in McDowell County. Uh, I think he told Gary Robertson of AP that he had. Uh, some consulting gigs and clients uh, lined up that he declined yeah. to name because he didn't want them to get negative publicity from uh, him being on their payroll, uh, yeah. which, which is interesting. So we really don't know day-to-day other than calling into a radio station and, and offering his take uh, yeah. how Pat McCrory is uh, is spending his days. But uh, still accessible for uh, anyone who wants to interview him. Uh, it's, it's yeah, not he, hard to he's, get. I, I do have to give him that. He's been accessible in his post-governorship. He's talking with media. I know he was... Call, he might have been called. It was either Craig Jarvis or someone else in the Capitol press corps. But he called him from a beach and was talking about something going on. Yeah, and just you know, he's he's we doing hear his from best. Him once in a while, yeah. yeah. But continuing this pattern of never being open about who he's working for when he's not when he's outside government. Remember when he was working for Morn Van Allen between uh, runs for governor, um, and you know we kept asking him, okay, well, who are, who were you representing? Who'd you work for? Never told. And again not telling us uh, who's representing. So maybe that does mean he wants to run again. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, maybe we'll find out on a financial uh, economic interest for him if he decides to run for office again, or maybe we won't. Uh, we'll have to see. So Pat McCrory in there, along with Graham Cassidy and the uh, Historic Commission Future Power Strip. So, Andy, last but not least, uh, well, who's your headliner? Well, I'm going to shamelessly self-promote. Earlier this week... You're the headliner? I, I, Mike, I'm going to go with don't let hidden passport rules ruin your honeymoon abroad, as they almost did to me, which uh, if... I wrote my first and only column I've ever written about my experience. Yeah, you and your wife were on the front page of the print edition? That's right. That was a surprise to uh, both of us. Um, 
we were five days away from going to Italy when we found out that they wouldn't they won't let you in the country if your passport expires in six months. Mine expired in five. Uh, I had to drive to Atlanta and back uh, to get it renewed, and it was incredibly irritating. Um, the honeymoon was wonderful, uh, but I found it very surprising that my passport says nothing about these rules about uh, for entry. Yeah, I did not know that. And thankfully, my passport was so far expired by the time I traveled that I knew I had to get a new one. But. Right, right. My passport said nothing about these rules. And then when you try to go to a passport office, there's not one in the Carolinas. There's not one in Virginia either. There's one in Washington. You, you can go to the post office to renew, but those they won't help you out with uh, where, where you're at. That's right. They, uh, they take one to two weeks to mail you, mail you a new passport. And so what they tell you is you have to make, a, make an appointment at one of the passport agency offices. And the closest ones are in D.C. and Atlanta. Um, and so in my case, they didn't have any openings to see me in Washington, D.C. So I drove to Atlanta and uh, met with a specialist and everything went smoothly and I got a new passport. Um, but I had to pay uh, a fee to expedite it altogether. Everything cost one hundred and seventy dollars. But, you know, it, it made me wonder things like, you know, I, I'm used to just maybe I'm lazy because and some readers uh said that that might be the case but i look Wait, at my did you past- get hate mail for uh, having a problem saying that this was really your fault not the fault oh, of else oh yes absolutely <laughs> i had trolls on twitter i had emailers that said you're a reporter you should have looked into this why didn't you and i did look into it. i looked at my passport and it said that it had five months left i thought that was good enough and so i didn't look much past that thank god that i had uh that will came to my birthday party and told me like uh, his experience which was similar yeah, my present was to be a, a big downer on your birthday and be like you might not be able to go to italy dude. Right. at the same time <laughs> will may have saved the honeymoon that's right he may have i'm sorry i didn't bring you anything back uh sorry <laughs> uh but yes and uh so i'm using my what little plat few platforms i have to spread the word that a Look and make sure the when you go abroad that that country will let you in. And B, federal government, why is there a passport agency in Hot Springs, Arkansas, but not Raleigh or, Raleigh or Charlotte or Charlottesville or somewhere closer? Yeah. Uh, All right. So uh, we'll, we'll call that uh, Andy's uh, passport misadventures uh, as a potential headline of the week. I should note that if you read his column and scroll all the way to the bottom and then click through the photos, you'll get to enjoy a picture of Andy's passport photo that from the almost expired passport in which he looks like a second-rate boy band member from the 90s. Thank you, Colin. <laughs> so enjoy that. Uh, so uh, for Headline of the Week this week, we've got Pat McCrory, we've got Andy's passport misadventures, we've got Graham Cassidy healthcare bill, and we've got the uh, future power strip from the Historic Commission. And, you know, uh, in the weeks we've done... In, years now we've been doing uh, Domecast. I don't think anyone's proposed a future headline before, so I think I'm going to have to give this one to Lynn uh, for uh, probably correctly forecasting the uh, legislative uh, action uh, in the coming months to change the uh, nature of the NC Historic Commission before they take any action on monuments. Uh, So that covers it for this week's Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, We will talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.